name's Lauren. I'm a deacon here at Mercy View. Tonight we will be in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, and Revelation 12, 6 through 9a. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, tonight, we continue to the end of our summer series by the book. Uh, for the last few weeks, we've dug underneath the why of how our weekly liturgy is formed. We've talked about how we confess the word through uh, not merely confession of sin, but our public confession of faith in the hope of the gospel and the truth of God's word. Uh, we've looked at the impact that being word-infused, where the reading of God's word sits at the front and center of our worship each and every week, impacts and moves the way that we worship. It centers us. We sing the word. We've talked about preaching the word. And tonight, as we bring it all to a close, we want to turn our attention to what we call each and every week the high point of our service, where we come around the table, and we see here in the center, where we take the bread and the cup, what we call the Lord's Supper. In a book that I'll quote a few times tonight called Theopolitan Vision, pastor and theologian Peter Lightheart says this, the church fulfills Jesus's mission by being what she is, a liturgical city. Mission starts with liturgy. Liturgy is the time and place where the church gathers as the city council, the ecclesia of God, an assembly of the heavenly city. As the real men and women and children with real bodies and souls gather for worship and disperse from worship, heavenly life comes to earth. Having tasted and seen the good things of the age to come, the church goes out to share those goods in the marketplace. You see, it's the bedrock of all that we do each week, from the call to worship to the benediction, there is a missional component and aim. There's a reality that we as the people of God have tasted and seen the goodness of God and glimpsed the good things of the age that is to come. 
And this should move us outside of ourselves. Confessing, reading, singing, preaching, they all have this infusion of tasting and seeing, but it's in the meal that our metaphor begins to take on, if, if I may, flesh and blood. It begins to take on the character of tasting and seeing where we actually get to taste what the goodness of God is. Not literally. It's not literally flesh and blood, but the metaphor here is more than merely a metaphor, and we're going to unpack that tonight. It's more than just a mere metaphor to remind us and help us remember. God is really at work in a real, tangible way in this part of our liturgy, just as he is in the other parts. There is a real work of God's grace that takes place when we come to the table each and every week. And that's what we're going to spend our time unpacking tonight. We need to hear it. We need to feel it. We need to see it. We literally need to taste it. And so tonight, here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at the two passages we read just a moment ago and unpack two very important things that are happening when we come to the table. One, in the Lord's Supper, we're first remembering what we ha has already been done for us. That Christ has lived, died, and he's rose again to give us new life. New life to all of those who in faith and repentance believe on him. We remember that he suffered because it was for our sake. And so when you come to the table, you'll hear Christ's body broken and his blood shed for you. That's not all we do, though. We don't just remember. We also look forward with an eager anticipation and celebrate what will be done at the end of the age. When we come to the table, we are tasting and seeing the past, the present, and future goodness of God in Christ toward us. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 11 and remember. Remembering what has been done. Paul begins in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And he's wanting to make it very clear that what he's about to say about the Lord's Supper, it's not something that he has come up with. He wants the Corinthians to know that this did not come from his own mind. It's not his own invention. This is something he has received and delivered as a faithful messenger. He received it from the Lord. Scholars have debated about what he means by that. Was he just saying this as a way of going, hey guys, listen, Jesus did this thing with his disciples in the upper room, and, and they relayed to the church what was instituted, and so I received it from Christ through them. Or, or maybe he's talking about uh, Christ revealing it to him in one of those couple times where he sees the risen Lord and he communes with him face to face. I lean toward the latter, but it doesn't really matter. Whatever he's saying here is that Christ has revealed whether in the institution of the Lord's Supper we read about in the Gospels or when he talked to Paul directly, they jive, they mesh up, that this is something that he cared about and wanted his church to participate in. And what Paul cares about is that we know that this is a God-ordained component of Christian worship and that it matters. 
And he recounts what we see in the Gospels. He, he tells us that Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And I want us to notice a, notice a couple of things. First, he mentions the fact that Jesus gives thanks. He thanks God for the bread that they're about to eat. In, in the same meal, where he articulates the fact that one of his friends is about to betray him, and he's about to be led away to suffer and to die, knowing what's coming, he gives thanks to God. For something as simple as the bread that's in front of him, but I think for much more, because he knows the plan that is ahead of him. In some church traditions, you, you have this meal referred to as the Eucharist. It's a, a word that means thanksgiving. And when we come to the table, we're coming to remember what Christ has done for us in a way that should be thankful. It should provoke thankfulness in us when we come to the table because even before it took place, Jesus himself modeled a thankfulness to God for his provision. In that moment, he was thanking God for the provision of their daily bread. But in our reactment each and every week, in this moment, we're thanking God that he provides not only our daily needs, but that because we're here taking this bread and drinking this cup, he's provided for us everything in our souls that we needed to be made right with him. The second thing is this command to remember both the body and the blood, the bread and the wine. Jesus emphasizes remembering in both of these moments. And I don't think it can be understated because we're forgetful people. We're, we're so forgetful. We, we forget so often the good things of God and the commands of God. This was illustrated perfectly by my son this morning. Yesterday, he got in trouble because he knows he's not supposed to have his uh, little cell phone that we have for them that they take on road trips. And I had to get on to him three times yesterday and be like, hey man, this is only for road trips. You can't use this. And this morning... When we're eating breakfast and he comes and whispers to his sister, hey, I stole the phone. It's in our room. And he gets in trouble because she's sitting next to me and I can hear this. And I am getting on to him. Do you know what his defense to me was? I forgot. Probably not. And I told him as much. But how often do we forget? Like maybe he did forget. I know there's plenty of things that I forget. And I had to remind myself of that today as I was thinking through this, that I am very forgetful just like him. The things that we forget are different the older that we get and the more life that we live. I forget that the person driving in front of me is driving a little foolishly to tone it down a bit is a person made in the image of God and that my anger toward them is not loving my neighbor the way that Christ has commanded. But I forget that all of the things that stress me out in life, all of the things that cause me to, to have a little bit of high blood pressure, 
and be a little worried are things that Jesus has said, my Father in heaven already knows I need. And he tells me to look at the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, and if God will clothe them and feed them, how much more will he care for me? And I just forget. And so, it stands to reason that we would often forget what it is that happens here. And that Jesus knowing us and knowing that would say, hey, I want you to remember. Remember my body that's broken. Remember my blood that is spilled. Jesus says when we take the bread and the cup, we're to remember, to be reminded of what they represent. They don't just represent his body and his blood. They represent his broken body and his shed blood. And he's calling for a rhythm in our lives that again and again brings back the memory of what salvation actually cost, of what sanctification cost, and of what that future glorification that we long for and look to was purchased with. We're forgetful, and we need to be reminded, and we need to be reminded often. And so that's why Paul adds, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, Paul's assumption here is that this is going to be something that happens frequently. And so we believe that means here at Mercy View that we should come to the table as often as we gather. And so we come to the table each week. And for me, that's a bit of a divergence from how I grew up. Maybe it is for you as well. Like I've heard it argued that we should only take communion occasionally, at most maybe once a month. That was the rhythm we had in my church growing up. So that it, it doesn't, this is the argument, lose its significance. But I can't seem to figure out how coming to the table less makes it any more significant. Because I am still forgetful those other three weeks of the month. And I still need this those other three weeks of the month. In fact, it seems to me that it devalues what's happening here. It removes this weekly reminder of God's grace, of my sin, and the price that was paid for the two to meet. And so Lightheart, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he, he argues in that same book that the Lord's Supper, it, it should be part of every Lord's Day liturgy. Worship in the Bible, he says, always takes place around a table. Biblically, worship without a meal isn't worship at all. When we worship without the supper, it's as if we are the disciples on the road to Emmaus who hear Jesus speak but never recognize him because we don't stick around for the breaking of bread. A liturgy without the supper is like a contract without signature. It is, not just like, but is a wedding feast without food. A party without hors d'oeuvres and wine, as if the Lord were to open his house to extend hospitality, but never offer chips or bring out the beer. This weekly reminder is where we see the word of God proclaimed. It's where we see that climax in the word that we eat, not just the word that is proclaimed. It's the word that we partake in. 
This weekly meal is also a reminder of two other things. Things present and future. Notice the last phrase of verse 26, that when we take the supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Out of all the elements in gathered worship, nothing speaks the gospel more directly than what takes place when we come to the table. Believers are admonished to examine their hearts and then to cast their sins and their cares at the foot of the cross. We do that in confession of sin, but then we get it again right before we come to the table. What's lurking underneath that the Word of God has brought to the surface? I lay that at the feet of Jesus as I examine myself before I come to the table as I'm reminded of what happened at the cross. And it's in that moment that unbelievers are given a window into the beautiful mystery and hope of the gospel. And that's this present reminder that all of us in this room need the gospel here and now, sinner or saint, a participant in or observer of the supper. We all find our hope in the one the bread and the wine represent. But it also reminds us that Christ not only died for our sins, but that he will return again to make all things new. Which is where I want us to focus our attention next. In the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating what is being done and undone. See, communion is an eschatological meal. That's a big word, I know. But eschatology is just this, this theological term for the last things. It's the parts of God's word that point us to the future. When all of the things that are now and that are broken and that are sad are made new. Which is why I want us to think of the celebration of the Lord's Supper as something that's celebrating what is being done and undone. All three of those words matter. Being means that what is taking place is happening right now. When we come to the table, there is something happening now. Theologians often describe the time that we live in, in the church age, as being the already and not yet. That there are things that the finished work of Christ has accomplished that we are already realizing that point us to and our experiences of the age to come where Christ fully reigns and rules over the earth and over his creation. And as is apparent to anyone who lived through that storm a few weeks ago, right, there are things that are not yet as they should be because there are still broken things in creation. There's still broken things inside of us. There's still broken things inside of our cultures. We, we live in this in-between, in this tension, where things are being made new, but they're not completely there yet. And Christ, through the Holy Spirit and the church, is right now at work making all things new, as we read in Revelation 21. It is happening, and it's going to continue to happen and it will be completed one day when Christ returns and establishes his full rule and reign. That's what's being done. 
the church, the people of God, and the gathered people of God in the city are or should be an agent of renewal, bringing people to a place of hope and life and trust in the gospel and to a place of renewal. There's this this spiritual component to that, and there's also, I think, a physical component to that, where the physical world, as far as we can, is being molded and shaped toward looking as much as it can in the already, like the not yet that's coming. Where we take little pieces and corners, and we point to the glory of God. And the supper reminds us of that. We celebrate that work of Christ in the world when we take the Lord's Supper. And what's being done means that already, right now, what has been done through sin, through sin is being undone by the grace of God through Christ, mediated to the world through the Holy Spirit and the church. And I think nothing encapsulates what that undoing looks like more than a song that we sing normally at Christmas. I don't think it was written initially as a Christmas song, but we sing it at Christmas every year. You're probably familiar with it. It's called Joy to the World. And like most hymns, most people never sing the third verse. And I don't know why, but the third verse of a hymn always gets just left out. But the third verse of Joy to the World is amazing. It's my favorite verse of the entire song. And it goes like this. It says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the, infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. But I can't think of a more joyous and celebratory song and stanza in a song than that right there that we sing when we sing joy to the world. And it is a song about a past because Jesus came, a present because he has already done his work on the cross and a future because there's still some thorns and things to be undone that infest the ground, hope that is in the world. And when we come to the table, that's what we're celebrating. Maybe thinking about communion as a celebration seems a little odd to you. And that's understandable because many of us have probably come from traditions where the Lord's Supper uh, was treated as what Peter Lightheart says uh, is a gathering at a tomb rather than a table. And that tomb isn't empty. It can kind of feel sometimes when we come to the table that we're, we're supposed to be sad. And he makes the point that when we come to the table, even if that day we walked into here bearing heavy burdens of sin, we come to the table because we've laid those down at the feet of Jesus. And so we come with lifted, not drooping heads. We come with joy, not with sorrow. Because our sorrows and our sins are laid at the feet of Jesus. Now listen, we should treat the Lord's table with the utmost respect. We don't come to the table flippantly. Paul immediately after verse 26 calls on everyone to examine their hearts before approaching the table. Taking the Lord's Supper is an extremely serious thing. And taking it in an unworthy manner is something that he connects later in those verses to 
the Corinthian Christians having experienced sickness and some of them even death. However, respect and examination don't mean we approach the table with such solemnness that we lose sight of the byproduct of remembering what Christ has done. When we remember Christ's death, we're also reminded of his resurrection, which is itself a reminder of our own future resurrection and the life to come. At the table, we celebrate. We celebrate what's being done and what's being undone. Communion is a celebration of the continued, active grace of God toward his people through Jesus Christ. It is a means of grace. Richard Barcelois defines the term means of grace as referring to the delivery systems that God has instituted to bring his grace. That is spiritual power, spiritual change, spiritual help, fortitude, and blessings to needy souls on earth. And in reference to the Lord's Supper, he says, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace through which Christ is present by his divine nature and through which the Holy Spirit nourishes the souls of believers with the benefits wrought for us in Christ's human nature, which is now glorified and in heaven at the right hand of the Father. This grace that we've received from Christ at the table, it's not saving grace. It's not the kind of grace that can wash your sins away. It's the kind of grace that's given to the people of God who've already been cleansed of their sins for sustaining their walk with God throughout their life. Because listen to me, you need the same kind of grace that was given to you at the day that you repented and believed in Jesus to sustain your walk with him. Because it is not easy to live out the Christian life. It's not easy to fight against sin. It's not easy to set your eyes on things that are above and not on things that are below. And at the table, God reminds us of himself and of his sacrifice. And that is a grace to us. That's why what was happening in the Corinth was such a big deal. See, communion doesn't save you, but it does take the people of God and place us in deeper fellowship with Christ and with one another. And what was going on in Corinth was the the poor, who would show up maybe a little bit later and not have as much to share in the communion meal, were being left outside to kind of fend for themselves. And the rich who would bring all of this stuff, they were not only partaking in the, the meal, but they were eating to gluttony. And some of them were even getting drunk. See, instead of being connected in a deeper way to Christ and to one another, the Christians in Corinth were being divided by these superficial things that should not have separated them anymore. Paul said some would go hungry and others would get drunk. It wasn't a time of celebrating the grace of God in Christ, but of filling up selfish desires on what was meant to represent the body and blood of Jesus and our common union with him. The grace that we receive at communion is the grace that strengthens us. It's the grace that binds us to one another and to Christ in a more rich way. And these are all real and tangible reasons why we are to celebrate when we come to the table. 
But I think maybe the most helpful reason of all that we should approach the table with a sense of joy and celebration is because it's not just a table of remembrance, but it's a table of rehearsal. Brad said earlier that we rehearse the gospel when we come to the table, but it's also another kind of rehearsal. You see, the rehearsal that I'm referring to here, it's a, it's a wedding rehearsal. We're rehearsing what's going to happen at the end of the age. It's the second thing that Lauren read to us. I'm going to read it to us again. It's Revelation 19, 6 through 9. And this is what John saw and what he said. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Listen, you might not have just now, but I got chills when I was copying that down into my notes sitting in a coffee shop this week because I was just thinking about what it was that John heard as he saw this vision. Listen to how he describes this picture that's taking place. And just think about it in this context. Revelation 18, what he saw in that chapter was God through Christ returning and vanquishing all of his enemies. Like he has conquered and won. There are no enemies left. The battle is done. That already that we're living in, it's over. He's standing on the edge of the not yet. And then he gets into chapter 19 and he gets this picture of a victory parade. And it culminates in the scene. A great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. That is something to celebrate. And it doesn't stop right there. Because this multitude announces that the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage of the Lamb, when the, the people of God are united to Christ as a bride to her groom. I. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do a little mic drop right now. Um, <laughs> amen and amen. Um, this is a rehearsal of that moment. This points to that great day where we, with all the saints of God, from every age and from every tribe and every tongue, Every nation on earth will gather around the throne and we will feast because we are in the presence of our King. This is what we remember. This is what we celebrate. Here's where I want to bring it to a close tonight. 
This is the last message in our series about how Scripture, the Word of God, orders our worship. Now, the text from 1 Corinthians we read tonight and read just about every week as we come to the table does a pretty good job of making the point that Scripture centers this portion of our liturgy. Jesus flat out said, do this, and so we do. As we think about word-centered worship, though, I'm again brought back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, and that weird little phrase that the author of Hebrews has right there toward the end of his book where he says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, the entire book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is the fulfillment of every hope that the Jewish people have had in their entire history. And here in chapter 12, following the case study in faith that is Hebrews chapter 11, the author wants to encourage the people that he's writing to so they'll press on in faith toward their true and better hope that is a, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we enter into that kingdom, he's made the point and the case, through the blood of Jesus. He says it's the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And in chapter 11, verse 4, the author kicks off the, the hall of faith as it's known by recounting how Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain through faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so, if you know the story of Cain and Abel, Cain got really jealous about that, and he killed his brother. Afterwards, God confronts Cain, and he tells Cain that the reason he knows he's lying when he makes a defense about not knowing where his brother is is because his brother's blood had cried out from the ground, cried out for justice because he was innocent. Hebrew says he was righteous because of his faith. And so God confronts Cain. And he says, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground to me. And the author of Hebrews is making the point that the shed blood of righteous Abel cried out for justice to be done. And if God heard the cry of Abel, how much more does he hear the blood of Jesus speak? You see, the author saying that the blood of Jesus cries out from the ground around the foot of the cross where it was shed. But what it cries out is a better word than the cry from Abel. You see, where Abel's blood cried out for justice to be executed toward Cain, the blood of Christ proclaims that the just wrath of God has already been fully satisfied. The blood of Jesus preaches a better word because though on the cross the innocent and righteous one died at the hands of unjust men, he also gave his life for those same men. See, from the cross, Jesus cried out to the Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But his blood cries out, forgiveness is here for you to receive. You see, from the cross, the cry of Christ in his final breaths was a prayer to the Father 
But from the ground, his shed blood preaches to all who would listen. Come. Forgiveness is found in no other place. And it's here for you. You see, this table, this supper, it it preaches each and every week. It proclaims again and again the same thing that the blood of Christ at the foot of the cross proclaimed 2,000 years ago. That the truly innocent has died at the hands of the guilty, but also for us. We, like Cain, are the cause of our brother's death through our sin, but instead of taking his life, it was freely given. So maybe tonight as we prepare to bring this to a close and come to the table, you haven't ever repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus. Listen, you've heard the reasons why tonight. You heard this message of bread and wine and and that Jesus has died for you. And maybe tonight the Holy Spirit, you don't know how to explain it, but he's gripping your heart and you're, you're wondering if you, you maybe have missed something and maybe you need to understand a little bit more. Listen, there's going to be some folks up here on either side that want to pray with you. You can find Brad who spoke earlier. You can find our other elder, Sean, or myself. We, we want to talk with you and pray with you if that's you. But for those of us tonight who, who have trusted in Jesus, as we come to the table tonight, we're we're coming to remember all that Christ's sacrifice means and all that it costs. But we're also coming to celebrate because you will indeed in him receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken because you've been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And tonight is just the rehearsal. Let's pray.